Welcome to Cast Conversations, a monthly podcast for school leaders by school leaders. Each of our episodes will engage practitioners and thought leaders in conversations about issues, ideas, and innovations relevant to today's busy educators. Hello, everyone. My name is Rosie O'Brien Wojtek, and I'm an Assistant Executive Director for the Connecticut Association of Schools. Today, we are here at the CAS headquarters in Cheshire with the three recipients of the 2020 Connecticut Association of Schools Assistant Principals of the Year. The Assistant Principal of the Year program, sponsored annually by the Connecticut Association of Schools, was established in 1990 to bring recognition to the assistant principalship and to spotlight the critical role that assistant principals play in the education of our youth. The program recognizes outstanding school assistant principals who have succeeded in providing high-quality learning opportunities for students. These administrators have demonstrated excellent leadership, commitment to staff and students, service to their communities, and contributions to the overall profession of educational leadership. We're very fortunate to have all three recipients here at CAS with me today for this conversation. I'm going to begin by introducing each of our three assistant principals and having them briefly share who they are and their personal journey for how they became the assistant principal at their respective schools. First, I would like to introduce Todd Manuel, house principal of Trumbull High School in Trumbull. Todd has been named as the 2020 High School Assistant Principal of the Year. Todd was chosen for his ethical and relationship-driven leadership and his unerring focus on what's best for students. Congratulations, Todd. Thank you very much, Rosie. So tell us a little bit about yourself, your school, and how you became a house principal at Trumbull High School. It's a loaded question. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'm sure. Yes. Uh, What I can say is that Trumbull High School, I I believe this year, is the fourth largest high school in the state of Connecticut, uh, with just over uh, 2,200 students this year. We separate ourselves as a way to try and make a really big place feel a little bit uh, smaller and more intimate by Alpha. And so uh, I am actually one of three house principals, uh, which makes receiving this award a, a little more special because I think it's representative of some of the really great people that I work with as well. Mm-hmm. I was a, uh, a classroom teacher in, in business education for nine years prior to kind of throwing my hat in the ring for an open uh, house principalship. And I would say I took a very atypical route. I think we'll learn more from some of uh, our colleagues here today. But, you know, for me, I think what I found was stepping directly out of the classroom into this role was eye-opening. And it provided me with some perspective uh, that maybe was a little unique a little snippet there. I can't wait to hear more about that, so thank you, Todd. Next, I'd like to introduce Antoinette Belmonte, the assistant principal of Henry James Memorial School in Simsbury, who's been named as the 2020 Cass Middle School Assistant Principal of the Year. Principal Scott Baker calls her a high-energy student's first leader. Antoinette is first and foremost a champion and cheerleader for her students, and their welfare is always in the forefront of her mind. Congratulations, Antoinette. Thank you, Rosie. Nice to be here. So tell us a little bit about yourself, your school, and how you became an assistant principal at Henry James Memorial School. Absolutely. So Henry James is just an amazing middle school in Simsbury, located in the Farmington Valley. We're a 7-8 building with approximately 625 students. Myself and Mr. Baker, our principal, just have an amazing team that works every day to make sure that climate and culture are at the center of everything that we do. I'm just so happy to be a part of this school. I've actually been in Simsbury since 2007. I started as an English language arts teacher, teaching Mm -hmm. eighth grade, Uh, moved into an instructional literacy coaching position, 
And then when the assistant principalship came open, I was definitely encouraged by lots of my supervisors and central office administrators and teachers to apply, and I'm happy that I did. Great, great. Can't wait to hear more about all the things that you're doing at your middle school. Our third special guest today is Garrett Duquette, the former assistant principal of Ashford Elementary School in Ashford. Garrett was named as the 2020 Cass Elementary Assistant Principal of the Year, and then, shortly after receiving the award, became the newly appointed principal of Dr. Helen Baldwin Middle School in Canterbury. Ashford Superintendent Dr. James Longo says that Garrett really wanted our school to be great, and he pushed the limits each day to make it so. Congratulations, Garrett. Thank you. I'm glad to be here with you. So tell us a little bit about yourself, your school, and how you became the assistant principal at Ashford Elementary School, and now the principal of Dr. Helen Baldwin Middle School. So I spent nine years teaching at the 7 to 12 level. I was a middle and high school teacher in Windsor and Bacon Academy in Colchester, and I loved being in the class. I loved working with students, and I also found myself driven to running summer school programs. Getting that perspective on education kind of let me see some of the things you could do at the macro level for kids. You know, it helped me look at if you can make decisions for the learning needs that kids have, you can have a significant difference. I started really having an interest in moving into administration at that point. I also have been a consistent participant on NEAS accreditation visits for the last nine years. So that also enabled me to kind of look at education from a different perspective as well. So long story short, I landed in my position at Ashford. Four and a half years ago, and I loved it. It was a pre-K to eight district, a very small, unique community. We had 400 students spanning, you know, 11 or 10 grades. I'm sorry, pre-K to eight in one building, and it was amazing to see the various needs of kids across the ages are very consistent. They're not that different, you know. It was a very invigorating experience. Being a leader in a school is unique in that every day is different. You can't predict your day. You may have a schedule with things that you're going to be doing, and something else pops up. And I love the opportunity I have on a daily basis to, to solve problems, to work with my staff. Now as the principal of a middle school, I really like having the opportunity to, to work with a new staff and to, to move the school district forward. So I'm, I'm happy to be where I am. I'm really thankful to Ashford for everything they've taught me. And I'm looking forward to going through this interview with you today. Great. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it too. So congratulations again to all of you and welcome. I'm very excited that we're here today and we can talk about the important work that you do. So let's get started. The first question that I have is that the stereotypical picture of an assistant principal is that of a disciplinarian. However, each of you bring so much more to your schools. I know that there's no such thing as you said, Garrett, as a typical day for an assistant principal. That being said, please share with us what it's like to be an assistant principal, what is your role, and what are your main responsibilities? So anybody, take it away. Yeah, I think what's great about it is that every day is just different from the one before, and you never know what's going to happen the next day. While discipline is certainly at the core of what I do on a day-to-day basis, my world is really surrounded by creating schedules for all of the events that are coming up, certainly thinking about the testing that we have to do each spring and planning for that. I spend a ton of time working with our teachers and professional learning communities around all of the core instruction and the assessment that takes place, and really just being visible in the hallways and at lunch and at bus arrival and drop-off just trying to make sure that everything in the building is safe and orderly so that the principal can kind of do all of the heavier work and not have to worry about those sort of day-to-day operations. Just to kind of dovetail on that a little bit, I think from my perspective, uh, I'll do whatever is needed, all right? Uh, The needs of each individual day vary. It could be anything from a student situation to a staff situation to a facility situation. Uh, 
I kind of come in and say, no problem, right? Wh whatever it is. And so whether it's a, a direct house principal or someone else on the administrative team or, or a building principal, hey, what do you need? We'll step up and get it done because I think we all have the pleasure of working with kids and that's why we do what we do. And there's nothing I wouldn't do for one of our kids. In our life. I think um, everything that my two colleagues here just said is 100% true. And to add to that, I think there's, there's a lot more that has been put upon assistant principals' plates over the last 10 or 15 years. You know, I think a big piece of what assistant principals do beyond discipline of students is also working with staff in terms of evaluation, in terms of professional development. You know, I found in my role as an assistant principal, I was often looking to work with staff on what classroom management and discipline looked like within the classroom. You know, staff members spend the majority of the time with the students and helping staff members to develop the processes in their class that help them to help students navigate those tricky situations helping them to work on restorative practices, help kids build empathy with one another is a huge piece of what assistant principals do. And I think that as time moves forward, we're gonna be looking at more than just what it used to be. You know, it's, it's constantly evolving. I think it's astounding how much assistant principals get done on a daily basis. It is astounding, I have to say. So tell me a little bit more about the supervising and evaluating teachers, because we know it's critical to ensuring rigorous, high quality, effective instruction in classrooms for every student every day. How do you find time to get into the classrooms? What are your look fors What are your non-negotiables? And how do you empower teachers? I think for me, I can get ahead of many behaviors by being as visible as possible. So your question about getting into the classroom, my goal is to be in every classroom at least once a week, spending five to 10 minutes in a classroom, if possible. Whether that happens every week or not, that's not always possible. You know, there are things that keep that from happening, but that's the goal, and I think in doing so, teachers feel comfortable having us in their classroom. We're not just in with our laptops, typing up an evaluation. We're in there engaging with the students, sometimes sitting down and doing the work with them. I think that makes teachers feel supported in many ways. For me, I look for students to be engaged, to be active, to be participating. I look for them to be responding in ways that shows that they are undergoing some rigorous learning, that they are working at the higher end of the learning spectrum. You know, I think personally, a non-negotiable for me is being mean to kids. I, I want staff to be kind to people. I want kids to feel like they are welcomed and that they have a family outside of their home because for some kids, we are the safe space for them. So that's that's a big non-negotiable for me. And personally, I empower teachers by asking them what they need. And I know how you said that already, you know, what do you need? I think that's a big thing that I look to use with my staff. I can't assume that I have the answers. You know, when we're looking at professional development or even when it comes to a conversation around an observation, I'll ask that question like, Here's what I saw. What do you think? What do you need? What can we do to help move you forward? And I think that does empower teachers just in the way that we hope our teachers are asking kids those same questions. And I think what I'm looking for at the heart of everything is the relationship and the connections that the teachers have with the students. If the learning environment is set up for success, that allows our kids to take those risks and really show what they know and what they've learned. I really look into a room to see that it is led by the students thinking. Um, I want to see inquiry-based teaching and learning at the core of everything. I want to see students asking questions, working with one another, and the teacher there certainly facilitating and helping to kind of steer direction, but I really want that critical thinking at the heart of it. I think the only thing that's left to add from a lot of perspectives that are shared, and I agree with every one of them, is the idea that that engagement might look different based on whatever content area we're going into. Yeah. You know, at the high school level, you have a little bit more specific driven instruction. And, you know, I, I can remember very vividly my first year as an assistant or a house principal and going into a world language classroom that was taught entirely in a native language. 
and not speaking that language myself. And, you know, I, I think learning is visible. I think engagement is visible and student behaviors are representative of those things. And, you know, I am so proud of so many of our teachers in our building that are able to create that magic every single day to benefit our kids. And so I really look forward to the evaluation process. I like having an open dialogue. One of the things that I do, I scribe as I go. And then when I sit down and meet with that teacher, it's always really powerful to have that interaction to kind of say, okay, so what did you do next? Or what was the basis that you did this? And I think because of that relationship that I've developed with the staff or the, you know, the flexibility of being able to pop in from time to time for a drop-in visit has really created a comfortable environment for the staff to take more risks. We want students to take risks, but I also want to see the staff take a risk. I just have to stop right now because our listeners can't see your faces. And I, I want them to know that as they're talking, you're smiling. I can see the passion coming through your eyes. So I just had to stop and say that before I ask this next question, which is about relationships, since you're talking so much about relationships. And we know relationships are important. So what are some of the strategies and techniques that you found to be successful at building relationships and connections between home and school and with and among students and teachers? I think it's making sure that you are reaching out with the positives because you tend to get too busy and you overlook all of that. You need to make those phone calls home. You need to do the emails. Our teachers, we send postcards home. We have a Lion Pride program where we're recognizing all of our kids. And I think you have to celebrate all of those successes because that's what continues to motivate kids. And what we do in our school that we're proud of is the whole restorative practice. And it's really making sure that kids' voices are heard, that when we do have issues that come up, that we're giving kids a voice and we're helping them work through and sort through those issues so that they feel valued and that they know that they have a champion in their corner to help them take those next steps. And for me, it's when that student walks out of the room, that's not the last conversation we have. It's all about the check-in, the follow-up, to ensure that those kids are constantly knowing that someone is there to have their back. Just to add on a little bit, you know, connectedness it doesn't happen by accident. I think that Every adult in the building can achieve what they emphasize. And so if they want to place an emphasis on that social-emotional side to then get at the core of having stronger academic progress, then that's going to happen. You know, I tried something new based on an article I had read in the beginning of the year that basically said that instead of me checking in with kids, I went up to a freshman student who I did not know. I introduced myself and I said, hey, listen, I'm having a rough week. Not, not for nothing, but if you could find me at some point and just check in on me, I'd really appreciate it. And then... <laughs> Almost two months had passed, and literally just about a, a month and a half ago, the student, hey, hey, Mr. Manuel, can I talk to you for a second? We're a very large school. I didn't place him right away. He goes, I just want to make sure you're having a good week this week. And he brought How back cool up that, that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And for, for me, I had never tried something like that before. And, you know, in my house alone, there's over 700 students. I have about 55 staff members that report to me. So I think I try to go out of my way, and it sounds like my colleagues do as well, to just make those connections and have that visibility. I mean, there's always time at the end of my day to write an email, mm -hmm. right? But there's not always time during the course of the day to try and interact with kids. You know, it's hard to add anything because I think the two of you just kind of hit a lot of nails that are 100% that are true. But, you know, I think, number one, those connections, having kids feel connected goes a long way towards building those relationships. Something I really found to be important for myself, both in my role as the assistant principal in Ashford and now currently as the principal at Baldwin, is... I greet kids at the door every day. You know, I stand out when they're getting dropped off and I high five every kid that walks in the building. And it does two things. It lets them know somebody knows they're in the building, but it also lets me have eyes on my kids as they come in. So I know who's coming in in a good place or not. 
and it helps me then get to my staff members say, hey, you know, I saw so-and-so might be coming in. It looks like you might be off. Check in with them if you have the time. Or if I know somebody doesn't have time and I do have the time, then I make sure I follow through and cycle back to that kiddo. And I think that goes a long way. And I think, while it's not my intention, I think parents hear that from their kids, and that means a lot to them because, you know, somebody told me while I was going through my own IG program, it's very true, and as a parent, I agree with this. Parents want to know that, A, that somebody's going to love their kid when they get there and that they're going to be safe. Those are the two things they want. Somebody's going to care about their kid and that they're going to be safe. I think the other thing that's really important is the communication with parents and, you know, Anjanette, as you said, beyond just the negative things that happen. I think positive communications home are really critical, and especially the parents that we need to have on board with us, they need to have that positive communication from us. And I think it's important, and I encourage my teachers all the time to try as much as possible to move beyond the emails and to make the phone calls because parents don't get a chance to hear from us as often as they should, and, and we're all busy. I mean, we, we live in a world where everyone gets 100 emails a day, and most of them are, are junk. So I think that that is a huge factor, and those phone calls can help bring somebody to the table that might not necessarily have ever come to the table before. I think that goes a long way, again, as in building those relationships. So we know relationships and a positive, safe, and supportive school climate pretty much go hand in hand, and you guys have already started alluding to some of the things that you do to create a safe and supportive school climate. But what are some of the strategies, other strategies that you're using to build and foster that positive school climate? I think listen. I think listen is a huge piece of it. I've often said either to staff, uh, parents, even, even to students, that my humility IQ is super high. Uh, I just want to get it right. And so if I make a quick judgment and then learn more information, you're going to see me as one of the first ones saying, all right, well, let's, let's make this better. Let's correct this. And I think there is a certain degree of uh, respect and empowerment that's come from the different constituent groups that you relate to within that. And then I, I feel like it gets me better for the next time. And I think that that's been one strategy that has uh, helped me kind of grow within the profession because there's a lot about our work that changes and there's a lot of things that at least I recognize I don't know, but there's even more of those things I'm willing to learn. And so I think that would be a big component for sure. I think about just the success in areas of the social, emotional, the academic, as well as the behavioral and really supporting that in all areas. And we're fortunate in our middle school to have a teaming concept. And a couple of days a week, we have students go to connections groups, where it's a nice small group. They meet with one of the staff members, and they just take the time to bond and to connect with one another. And really, we engage in a lot of work around circles so that, again, mm -hmm. all kids are heard. And just like you said, we're listening, but we're also gaining perspective. And one of the other things that we ground ourselves in around that school climate and culture is really making sure that our students have access to the curriculum and that our curriculum is right reflective of all of our students so that they feel like they truly belong and that they are represented and they're a part of the community. So we do a lot of great work around that. I think both in Ashford and in now my, my role in Boulder, we have done a lot with circles as well. And Jeanette just mentioned that. But I think circles play a, a large part in working towards that positive climate. I found that when something happens, when we can circle up and a kid can feel heard by the adults that they're interacting with, it teaches them how to respectfully share their feelings and to do it in a way that leads to positive outcomes rather than you know doing it in an antagonistic way that maybe escalates the situation. I think that's a great thing we can do. And, and the other result of that is I think staff feel supported. When they feel like they're able to sit down with kids and have their own concerns heard, relationship is strengthened, they feel better about themselves, and they feel better going back into classrooms with kids, and I think that builds that positive climate overall. Beyond that, I think, you know, Todd, you mentioned 
hearing people and just in listening. And I think that's another huge piece of it. I think it's easy to get in, in a position as an administrator to just kind of move forward and to do things as quickly as possible because there's so much to do. But to take time to stop and to listen to the needs of the kids, the parents, the staff, I think you get more for your money that way. And I think you end up with happier staff and happier parents and happier kids. And there is never one perspective that leads to the right answer, right? The best decisions are made by the collective. So I think that the more you listen, the more success you have, the more your school is successful and our kids are able to get what they need from us. Yeah, I just have to add that I would think that the circle of her helping to build trust among mm -hmm. your teachers and your students and probably yourselves if you're getting in and participating in the circles. And also circle back to that whole idea of relationships because kids are building relationships with each other, learning to understand and accept the diversity among each other. So all three of you have a student-centered student focus in your schools. How do you provide opportunities for students to share their voices, take responsibility and action, and recognize them for their achievements? In my previous position, we created a student leadership team and I had students who were almost acting as advisors for me as the assistant principal that kind of helped me keep a pulse on the things they felt were important in the school. And, you know, sad to leave in January because they got a chance to go on to actually a CAFT provided student leadership workshop. So it was that great, was, by the way. I was there. <laughs> they, that, was, uh, that was really exciting. Currently in Baldwin, I'm working with our NJHS students to look for more opportunities. You know, I had some students missing the other day about opening a school store. And we have students that are looking to bring community service into the building. So as a new person, I'm kind of looking for those opportunities. But I think they are there. And I think what's really important is not just not just working with the kids who seek out the leadership, but also seeking out the students who we as the adults see are really potential leaders and who might not see that themselves. Because I think those are the ones that we really need to be focused on, on grabbing them because that can help set them on that path forward. In our school, I think our student council plays a key role in helping students have a voice. They really kind of push forward all of the climate and culture that we're seeking and are able to implement throughout the year. What I really love though, is that we have students who have such great ideas and they come to us and if they see that there's a club or an activity that we just don't have, they're like, Mrs. B, can you help us get this started? And we've never turned down a student. So we have three new clubs start this year and it just empowers kids who are like-minded to just do great things. And again, I think just really looking at that whole connections piece allows kids again to have that voice and to be heard. I think I can just uh, share a story that just at least represents some of what my colleagues kind of here talked about. But I had a student, I think it was about two years ago, that came in and had obtained a number of signatures to try and get a, a particular student activity. And you know, she said, Mr. Manuel, look right here, I got all these signatures and, and said the number. I said, hold on, let me, let me stop you right there. Young lady, you don't need to have any signatures to come have a conversation with me. And I think just that line alone set the tone for the relationship I was able to develop with that student moving forward. And, you know, it, as much as we can promote our programs through student council or through some of the honor societies and, and things like that, I actually think student voice, peer-to-peer -peer voice is the most powerful. So then once that student kind of went to some, some people that she was, you know, spending some of her idle time with and said, hey, you know, this guy, Mr. Manuel, he's not so bad, you know, that type of thing. And then now there's more and more students. And I, and I think that as I work amongst an administrative team, because of the size of our building, I think that's become more contagious. You know, I, I think all of our team really works to create those connections with kids and hear uh, what, what their interests are. And they're super creative. I mean, without question, regardless of what level you're talking about. And they have phenomenal ideas. And so I, I think as much as we can do to try and support that, and empower students to, to feel validated in what their opinions are and 
things of that nature. It's only going to serve them well when they, they move on from our respective buildings, for sure. Absolutely. All three of you were selected for this award because of your outstanding leadership, and I can just hear it coming through with the things that you're saying. What are the traits of a great leader, and which of those traits exemplify your leadership style? I value collaborative leadership. I think it's really important. Just the word of the day, right, is just listening um, and being receptive to others' opinions and beliefs. And I think what's so important is not only listening, but taking that into consideration and using that perspective to enact some change. And then certainly following through. I think it's important, whether it's your students, your teachers, your staff, if they're expressing things in ways to make improvements or just expressing concerns that you stop what you're doing and you open your door to them and you listen, but they want to see, are you going to take some steps to be supportive? And if so, I think they expect some sort of follow through. So just that teamwork. I think uh, just again, as a quick add on, because I, I think everybody's perspective is going to be spot on uh, for something like <laughs> Well, that's this. because you guys are working with us, right? <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I think just to create that environment that shows that whatever conversation you're engaged in and whatever meeting you're having is the most important meeting of your day. You know, oftentimes I, I've heard comments uh, about, you know, the, the leadership in our buildings. Oh, well, they're always so busy or they, you know, the, the doors closed or, they, you know, at that particular moment. And, you know, I, I, I've worked really hard as I know my fellow house principals at Trumbull and the building principal do to try and make sure that we, we find more time to connect. And we try to follow up and say, oh, you know, I wasn't available at this time, but I am available at this point, and let's sit down and talk. And if that bumps the next meeting, honestly, the way that I feel is however much time we need to, to spend uh, to talk about an issue, to, to have a, a 504 meeting, to do, a, you know, a PPT or whatever it may be, that's how long that, that group deserves. And uh, I think that that helps kind of create some of that environment. For me, you know, I think something was already said, but I think... A significant trait of a strong leader is humility. I think knowing that we always have room for improvement and constantly questioning, you know, is there a better way I could have handled that? And you know, next year when this comes up again, is there a different way to do it? I think that works in, in the favor of any person, you know, leader or not, because the reality is, again, there is always a better way to do something. There's always new information that's out there and we, we always have room for growth. You know, on top of that, I also think that leading by example is really important. You know, something that I ask of my staff is I ask for feedback twice a year from, from my teachers, and it's anonymous through Google survey. But it, it shows them that we shouldn't be afraid of feedback, right? That we all have strengths and we all have room for growth. And I think that leadership in terms of letting them see that I'm not afraid of feedback goes a long way towards building their trust to be afraid. That we all are just looking to improve because that's what our kids need from us. So working with your principal and your administrative team, if you're at Trumbull, Trust, communication, and collaboration between an assistant principal, group of assistant principals, and the principal are extremely important. What are some of the strategies and structures that you and your principal or co-principals use to ensure quality working relationships? I think that in lies one of the biggest challenges, actually. Uh, as you look at it, whether it's, it's administrator to administrator or administrator to teacher or even administrator to the parent group or even administrative student, effectively communicating is the thing that we all can constantly improve upon. So I, I think this, as much as we can create an environment where everything can be shared and providing that, that we all have time to discuss all of those things. And we've moved to a model where we meet much earlier in the morning uh, than the start of the school day to start our week. 
And that's helped us, I think, tend to the things that are important. It's always challenging to have administrative or leader-based meetings during the school day. That takes away from the work that I think we really enjoy doing on a larger scale. Yeah, I mean, my principal and I, we try to make sure that every single day that we are touching base, especially about student and staff concerns, to know what we need to do together to be supportive. Um, but there are certainly days where we're kind of, you know, two ships passing by in the night, and that's just because it's busy, and busy is good. It, it's a good busy. But we really try to make sure that we meet once a week to just think about long-term planning so that we're on the same page. Because I think what's important to the two of us is that when staff or students ask either of us a question, we have the same answer. Like mom and dad. Right? <laughs> but it's, it's just so important. And I think we feel comfortable knowing what our distinctive roles are. And we trust each other enough that he is doing A while I'm doing B. But at the end of the day, we come together and we pull it all in. And that feels really good. Like Anjanette just said, you know, when I was in Ashford, um, uh, the principal and I tried as often as we could to touch base at least you know, five minutes every day. And even at the end of a really busy day before leaving, we just make sure, like, hey, are you doing okay? Checking in with each other. But I think that piece was amazing because sometimes it can be lonely being an administrator in a school building. You know, we are faced with challenging and difficult decisions that have given me great hair at a young age, you know. And I think that having somebody that you can work with and that understands what you're going through and is there as a support is critical. I'll be honest, as the principal where I currently am, I don't have an assistant on kids meeting. That is the biggest thing that I miss. I am working on building a leadership team, and I have some teachers that I check in with every day. As I, as I make my way around the school, I check in, how are you, what, you know, what are the needs? And I think having those individuals that you can lean on a little bit and that you can and have that conversation with and that you can let your guard down a little bit, I think is really, it's really valuable and it does add to our work health because we need to be able to be healthy while we are there. We need to have that mental support. Deb Reeves talks about the hub, you know, who are your hubs? Do you see your leadership team as being hub people in your school? I do, you know, and it's interesting. I haven't heard hub, I've heard the term maven before, but you know, it's similar um, yeah, concept. Yeah, yeah. But I do, and I think that every school has them, and, and as, a, as a leader, if there's anyone listening to this that is looking to become a leader, I think it's important to know in any building you're in to know who those hub or mavens are, because they're critical to any school's success. If I could just add in a little bit there, I'm just thinking about my own journey and, you know, stepping right out of the classroom into uh, the role that I have now. You know, I think the building principal, who was, was in his second year at that time, really took a significant risk. And, you know, as he, as he built the administrative team kind of a, around me being his first hire, you know, I think I had to bring the perspective of, okay, this is how we have done it type thing. And, you know, many times, you know, as, as some of the house principals have changed over, you know, after I arrived, you know, they'd come in and they'd say, so how do we handle this here? And I'd say, well, how did you handle it where you were at? And so we, we end up having that kind of professional discourse a little bit where we say, okay, well, I like, I like that piece of this and I like this piece of that. And um, that's where I think that professional collaboration really comes into play. And, you know, I, I think over the, the last five years and this being my sixth year within the role, that process has given me reference points to then draw upon for individual situations that start to come up. Whereas uh, I remember very vividly my entire first year as an administrator, every single day when you say touch base before you leave, I was in our building principal's office every single day without fail, going through my little notes of everything that went on. And to think the amount of time that Mark Carino provided me as a, as a mentor in that first year, just to kind of set the stage for what was to come after. I mean, 
leaders really do eat last, to, <laughs> to steal a, a phrase from a, a popular book out there. And it's just, a, he, he spent a lot of time in, in trying to give me a strong foundation in that first year. Which begs the question, what in your administrative program prepared you for the position of assistant principal, and what do you wish that they would have taught you? I think Garrett would be best suited to answer this one first. <laughs> uh, you know, I think the administrative programming, it's all like student teaching. Like, it's, it's a glimpse of what the job is, but you never really know the job until you do the job. You know, if I were to try to point to one thing in particular, I think I felt, I felt really ready to do teacher evaluation. And I went through the central program, the elementary program at Central, and I felt like they did a really good job of, of looking at how you could look at teacher evaluation as a, as a process to help people grow and to flourish as educators rather than as just a punitive, you know, evaluative process for people's tenure. And I think that was, that was amazing, and I appreciated that, and I think I stepped into the classroom with, with a great foundation to do that process well. Uh, in terms of things that could have better prepared me, you know, I think many of us go through the ONI2 program and have to look at a district-wide profile and, and try to create a solution to a problem that exists. And many of us create these great solutions, these problems. And then you get into the role and you realize, wow, I didn't realize like, how difficult it is to actually put a plan in place and how much you have to work. You know, you know in your head you have to work with all the constituents, but at the same time, making it happen is more than just a plan on a piece of paper. I think I don't think any program can really do that. I think you have to be in the role and you have to start understanding the people you need to work with. And the reality is, from school to school, that looks different. Also, you know, in some schools, you really need a lot of parent buying to make anything happen. Whereas in another, maybe it's more you need the staff buying. And in another place, maybe it's a brand new school and you have car form. So I think it's different based on where you're going. I would just piggyback off of that too. I found the teacher evaluation aspect of it to be incredibly beneficial. Um, and having been an instructional coach too, I felt I went into the program with that strength. But in addition, I think the program helped me in regards to action planning, like think big. What is your vision? What is your goal? And then how do you work backwards to achieve that goal? But you have to be in it in order to experience an administrative position. I would have loved a little more coaching and understanding as to how to be so flexible and quick with different audiences, right? Because you could be on the phone with a parent and on the phone with someone from the community and then someone from central office. And, and how do you adjust? And how do you become so quick and flexible in your responses? But that just comes with experience, but overall successful CCSU. I did my uh, program through the University of Bridgeport. And you know, I think very similarly, it's the on-the-job experience that gives you the perspective. And you know, I think the old cliche that a lot of people, you know, if they're not using in interviews, they should be using is, you know, I'm not going to be hired to do this job. I'm going to be hired in my ability to learn what the job is. And I think for me was, okay, I've never done teacher evaluation before. I, I know what good teaching looks like, but I've never done it. I've never chaired a PPT before. I've never facilitated a, a 504 meeting before. The, the biggest learning curve for me was probably, you know, getting those exposures to the different types of supports, which now probably over the last six years has become one of my strongest characteristics, I think, is, is being able to navigate through those really difficult conversations with families and, and uh, still adhere, you know, to the legalities that are involved. And so, you know, I, I definitely wouldn't want to say that I was not prepared to do the job. I, I, I think my 092 program helped me realize that there was a lot more to the job than just the stuff we were discussing in my coursework. So I do think there's a, a huge element of, of learning on the go, but you also, like I said before, you achieve what you emphasize. So I, I think 
all three of us are representative of going into situations. Like, okay, I'm not sure where this is going to end up, but we're, we're going to go in with an open mind. We're going to try and figure it out. And I think that's probably because all three of you are lifelong learners and self-directed learners, which brings me to my next question. What are you reading right now? I always like to hear what people are reading and how do you stay current with your information? What other kinds of things are you doing for your own professional growth? So what I, I'm currently reading right now is Lynn Lyon's book, Anxious Parent, Anxious Child, just really trying to understand, um, you know, some of the anxieties that our students are dealing with and how to support them while they're here in the school to be successful. We actually had Lynn Lyons come in last year to speak to our district and just really empower us with specific strategies to help those kids. Our school currently right now is doing a year-long study on homework, so we are reading Rethinking Homework and just trying to understand what is our mission and our purpose in assigning homework and where are we consistent, where are we not, and trying to really create a one-pager at the end of the year. So those are two things that are of great interest to me at this moment. And I just think staying current with NASIF and through ASCD, just constantly reading all of the materials that come your way. And when something sparks you and interests you, just dig a little deeper. I think it's the Kim Marshall uh, approach, right? Where you kind of skip out. Kim Marshall, right? right? Uh, yeah. Uh, I said, oh, you know, that's good. And then I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll pull that up and, and start to read a little bit. But, uh, you know, the, the, the book that I referenced earlier, Leaders Eat Last by Simon Snack, that really focuses on the chemistry of progress and, you know, trying to, you know, do all those things that we said earlier, right? And, and trying to empower along the way. And then people are going to be more productive if they feel like their voice is heard and that, you know, you value their opinions and their approaches and, and are showing respect. And so I, I think those are the things that kind of jump out to me. And, you know, I, I never really seem to, to know when something's going to jump out at me, but, you know, sometimes the covers of the educational leadership, you know, I'm like, oh, you know, this is something we're talking about in our PLCs. Let me see if I can, you know, pull some things from that article. And I remember my first years as a classroom teacher, we had a building principal at that time that would find these articles and then would just write you a note saying, uh, for your review and just like leave it in your mailbox. And I remember that I felt like that, that was always so impersonal. And so when I do find something that at least I want to share, and it's not overly often, uh, but I might go find the, that teacher, sit down and be like, hey, you know, as we're talking through some of this, it reminds me of this thing. And remember we had this conversation before, which I think has also helped build those relationships. I like uh, that personal touch. That's yeah. cool. I am reading three things right now. I kind of read for my job. I'm also working on my doctorate at UConn, so I'm doing some reading for that. And Have I, you I try to read for, for pleasure <laughs> as much as possible. So for, for my job right now, I'm, little lighthearted reading, reading Lead Like a Pirate. And it's interesting, Todd, you just mentioned giving books to teachers or articles to teachers based on conversations. Um, as I was leaving Ashford, I had a teacher come to ask me if I had ever heard Teach Like a Pirate. And we had a long conversation about, you know, some of the themes of that book. And I actually I ordered that, and that was a gift that I gave that person before I left because it just it was, it was a great conversation. And I know that's something that's really driven by trying to learn all the time. So I, I agree, Todd, that, you know, trying to give people things to, to enrich their own learning based on conversations we have goes a long way, but I'm sorry, I'm digressing from the question. <laughs> um, I'm also doing a lot of reading on evaluation and, and gender, and that's what I'm doing on, for UConn. And then for pleasure, I'm reading The Art of Racing in the Rain, an audio book on my way to work. That's been really enjoyed. Um, in terms of my own learning, uh, I actually was very lucky before this year began to be enrolled in a, a national program called National Aspiring Principals Academy. And there are, that's through NAESP, but it's supported by CAS. And there are three 
two-day conferences that have occurred in Washington, D.C., the last one's in April. And then beyond that, there is a one-day-a-month webinar that we have. But that has been an incredibly intense but helpful PD for me. You know, and I get a chance, again, three times at Fisk to go to D.C. and meet other assistant principals from across the country to see how other states are dealing with things. This was the first year they ever did this program, and it has been wonderful. And I would encourage anyone that has the opportunity to get involved next year if they are planning to do it again. But it is it's fantastic, and it's nice to know that the struggles that we are challenged with here in Connecticut are not unique to Connecticut. It's, it's, a, it's a lot of national issues and hear perspectives from other people from across the country. Kind of, It's great to take away new learning, but also helps you feel confident that what we are doing here is really good. And it's, in fact, we're often leading the, the trend, I would say. And one more time, what was the name of that program? National Aspiring Principals Academy. Okay, so if people are interested, they can go to the NAESP.org website? Yeah, we can probably Google it, too. And, you know, Eric Cardwell, who is the outgoing president of NAESP, is, is one of the persons that presents it, and Gail Pletnick, who is in charge of the AASA, I believe, which is the Superintendent's Association of the Country. She knows the people that have been running it. They've been fantastic, and they brought in nationally recognized principals all year long to, to meet with us and it, it's just been fantastic and they go over everything from having a digital footprint to you know um, how do we deal with emergency situations to everything it's just it's been a wonderful experience great thanks for sharing that of course so i'd like to know what you guys do to balance your personal and your professional life because i know you're very very busy so what do you do to make time to rejuvenate yourself I think from my perspective, and, and people are always floored to know this, but uh, my wife and I, hi Kate, by the way, uh, <laughs> uh, we have four children, you know, and, and it's a lot. It, the balance is, is not a word that, that I use very lightly, uh, but I can tell you that every moment that I'm, I'm not working, I'm looking forward to spending time at home uh, with them. And, you know, there's a lot of night events at the high school level, I'm sure, that my colleagues have, have their fair share of night events, but you know, whether it's a sporting event or a uh, parent night or whatever it may be and so you know I, I think for me being logistically close enough to be able to go home help out a little bit with dinner and then you know head back and then you know there's many events where I show my my human side and you know I've got an 11 year old girl next to me or an eight year old girl next to me and I might have a, a you know a five-year-old boy or a two-year-old in my arms mm -hmm. uh, and you know I, I think that that shows too that there's a certain relatability to the parents but you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know exactly how to answer the question, only in, in that, that it's something I strive for, but not something I, I generally achieve. But I know that, that I love the time that I do get to spend with them, and that kind of reinvigorates me to start my, my week over again. Yeah, this was definitely a question that we spoke about when I was being interviewed, and I believe someone had shared with the committee, you know, ask Anjanette four years ago how she was balancing, <laughs> and she wasn't. I wasn't. It was incredibly difficult to do because you're learning, you're you're in it, you're living it, you're trying to create everything from scratch and make it your own identity. And now, three years later, I would say I really have a beautiful balance between my family and work. I have a 14-year-old son and an 11-year-old daughter. And the former AP, who is now the athletic director in the district, he said, you have to just shut it off. You can make this a 24-7 job. You have to shut it off. And my now principal... He just says, you have to turn your phone off. You have to put it away. He says, if an emergency comes up, you'll hear from me. But otherwise, we're going to be okay. It can wait until tomorrow. So tomorrow, we have a half-day PD. I'm very excited. As soon as the last teacher leaves the building, I'm getting on a plane and heading down south to see my mom for a weekend. So you have to balance it, but it takes time to find it. And it's different for everyone. 
I would definitely reiterate everything that was just said by my two colleagues around the table. You know, Angie, that's something you just said I, I really strive for is when I'm home, I turn it off. And I think that we as leaders have to feel confident and comfortable enough to set boundaries with other people that we work with. You know, I tell parents, I tell staff members, I'll get back to you within 24 hours with an email. But when I'm at home, that's precious time. You know, I, my children are only children once. And I have a seven-year-old and a three-year-old. And when I'm home, like, I'm on the floor wrestling with them. We are, we're playing with each other. And we're hugging. We're reading books. I'm not looking at my phone. I don't, I don't want to look at my email. There's enough time where I'm going to need to do that. So I think even if it's two hours a day, um, making that time count and putting work aside is critical. And if you don't, you, you won't be healthy. You won't be, you won't be whole. And, and, and Todd mentioned bringing your kids to some of the events where you can. I think that's also huge. You know, my son is already talking about wanting to be a principal. He's seven. He's a first grader. Right? He's got a long way to go. But, but he loves coming to the dances. You know, he was boogieing on the floor of my middle schoolers um, a couple of weeks ago, doing, you know, dancing. And they were all, you know, excited to see him. And he won an award for the best parent. Um, I think those moments also are, are really critical. You know, sometimes we can't get out of work functions, but where we can include our family, it's, it's really important to do so, and especially our children, because our kids need to see, they need to see the mom and dad in their lives. And um, while the job is big, they can be part of it many times. And I think that's really important. You know, I think the other piece of it is making sure that we are giving our spouses the space they need. You know, I feel very supported by my wife who is enabling me to not only be a principal, but also supporting me through her doctoral program. So I look for those opportunities for her to get away and do the things that she loves to do with her friends. And I keep the kids, you know, and like, for instance, she likes Broadway. So she had a weekend away with a girlfriend recently and they went and saw the Atlantis Morissette Broadway show that's going on. That was time for her. And that's also important because our relationships with our loved ones are just as important as relationships we're building in our buildings. So great to hear family being so important. So glad to hear that. We're going to have probably a lot of people listening that may be thinking about going into the field of administration. What tips or tricks would you have for any teacher thinking about becoming an administrator? I, I know I've overheard when people have expressed, uh, oh, I'm, I'm thinking about starting an 092 program, or you know, I've thought about going into administration. I've heard some people say, are you sure this is what you want to do? I think if there's something inside of you that's telling you that you might want to do it, you got to go for it. Because I think it's easy to highlight the more challenging parts of the job. But for the people that are in it for the right reasons, I think the job can be super rewarding. And I think the future of our profession really is predicated on having the right people doing the right work. So I would say go for it. You know, it's never easy to step out of the classroom. You always say, well, you know, I always want to be around kids. Well, then you got to find time to be around kids as an administrator. And I go back to that idea that you know, you can you can shape the role into what you believe the role should be from an ideal sense. And so I, I would say uh, you're going to hear nothing but encouragement from me. Yeah, and I think one of the things that I would just say is you have to absolutely love the age group that you want to work with. You have to understand them, understand the world that they are in in order to really help them learn and grow. That to me is just so important. Really know your kids. I, I think two things, you know, number one, any teacher that's thinking about it, even if they're just interested in doing the 092 but isn't sure about being an administrator, I think the more you can learn and grow as, as an educator, the better you're going to be in the class and with kids. So I, I would 100% just encourage anyone to just go for it. You know, do the program, and if, you, if you're interested in being an administrator, it's a great, rewarding experience. I would say the only reason to not do it is if you think you're doing it for the money. You know, money is not a reason to make that kind of change because at the end, uh, money doesn't make anyone happy, and it doesn't help us get our kids anywhere. Um, another plug I would say is I think we need more female leaders in this state and across the country, and I think that is something that is really important. 
and people should consider. And some of our female teachers who are in the classroom and are thinking that they could be good leaders, they should really look for mentors that are going to push them towards that because that's that's a huge need. You know, we have two thirds of our teaching workforce is, is women, and it's fifty percent of our leadership workforce are women. And I think we need to see that that shift because there's a lot of great women out there that would be great leaders. And I definitely agree. <laughs> So last question, where do you see yourself five years from now and what do you hope that you've accomplished? I hope I'm in my position. I'm in a better place. I hope my kids feel like their learning is better. I hope our state economy has improved somewhat. So that way your budget's a little different. But um, I think that most districts would say that. I don't think I hope to have accomplished anything. I hope my staff feels like that. They as a whole are in a better place than they were five years ago and our, our kids are moving in the right I think in five years from now, I would love to continue to be where I am, but I certainly have aspirations to move into a principal role. So that's something that I'm looking forward to, and I'm eager to look into what you were talking about down in Washington with some professional development. But again, I think, right, it's, it's not about me. I want to walk away and be able to say, I hope that I've been able to impact the teachers and the students that I serve and the community. You know, I, I think the same, the same thing slightly differently. For me, Five years from now, hearing what other people have to say about their experience in, in our building or underneath my leadership or, uh, you know, based on their experience, I, I think I think that to me is where I, I want to hear as much positivity uh, and growth and say, hey, this, this is what helped shape me for who I am now. And if I can play any semblance of a role within someone kind of realizing their potential, then I'm good. I don't, I don't, I don't have any aspiration to tell you what role I'll be in at that point, but if, if I can help someone realize a certain level of success, then I'll be all right. You definitely will be all right, all three of you. I just have to say congratulations to all of you once again. It's been so much fun to talk with you today. You've provided our listeners with tips and tricks and ideas that they may want to use in their schools, as well as describing for teachers and or other aspiring administrators what it's like to be an assistant principal. That is, the day-to-day -day realities of being in the trenches and the personal rewards of being able to make a difference in the lives of everyone within your school community. You've inspired and impressed me, and I'm sure our listeners as well, with your candor, your thoughtfulness, and the amazing things that you're doing in your school communities. Clearly, the joy and passion for the work that you do every day in your schools is the reason why each of you was nominated by your schools and districts and then recognized by CAST as our 2020 Assistant Principals of the Year. All three of you are truly amazing. Thank you for taking time to talk with us today during the CAST Conversation Podcast. Thank you for joining us for this episode of CAST Conversations. This podcast is brought to you by the Connecticut Association of Schools, serving schools and their leaders since 1935.